0: Welcome to PROTO, Dispatches from the Frontiers of Medicine, produced in cooperation with Massachusetts General Hospital. Your host is Dr. Bruce Bloom Esquire, Ashoka Fellow and President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures.
1: Discovering a new use for a failed or existing drug has been entirely serendipitous. A drug in development to treat angina failed, but became famous as Viagra when some of the test subjects reported interesting side effects. There are other notable examples, and now scientists are beginning to repurpose drugs in a more systematic way. How is drug repurposing research carried out? Why is it important? And what are the hurdles to bringing these new uses to market? Joining me to discuss these and other drug repurposing issues are Dr. Francis Tonaguzzo, Executive Director of Partners Research Ventures and Licensing, and Dr. David Borsuk, neurologist and neurobiologist with appointments at McLean Hospital Massachusetts General Hospital, Children's Hospital Boston, and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Tonagutso and Dr. Borsuk, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you very much. Yeah. Pleasure to be, to, here. to be here. Yeah.
1: So I've hosted a wide variety of topics for ReachMD, but never one as close to my area of expertise as this one. For the last eight years, Partnership for Cures and I have worked with researchers at many institutions, including Mass General and Harvard, to show drug repurposing and other rediscovery research can quickly, safely, and affordably bring treatments to patients. I'm eager to facilitate this conversation with the two of you on this topic, so let's get started. What are some other notable examples of serendipitous findings in drug repurposing, and how has this become a part of the clinical repertoire that physicians are using?
2: I guess that from the perspective of what's been happening at MGH, I'm not sure that we have too many other examples except for the specific one that Dr. Borsuk has been involved with and he'll tell you about.
3: I think that serendipity has played a long and important role in terms of finding new roles for drugs that have been purposed in specific domains. Some examples include drugs that were used for tuberculosis that were eventually defined as antidepressants. And then antidepressants were found to be useful, again, serendipitously in chronic pain. And so there are a number of domains, and I suppose in every avenue of medicine, there are examples. In our own example that Dr. Tonaguzo mentioned, this was, again, a serendipitous finding of an antibiotic derivative used in the cancer population for a chronic pain purpose. And as such, in fact, has been part of a new domain of looking at a number of antibiotics to treat chronic pain in in recent years.
1: What is the specific drug that you're repurposing in that situation?
3: So this is a drug that came from an antibiotic. It's called spicomycin, and it comes from a fungi. It's a drug that was used initially at the National Cancer Institute for cancer. And As it happened in terms of our observation at Mass General, a patient who was being treated with this drug, an experimental drug, who had had pain for over 10 years, had asked me to be with him when the drug was administered. And prior to the administration of the drug, you could not touch his hands and, for that matter, his feet. He had a severe neuropathic pain condition where even just touching the skin of his hands or feet produced significant, unbearable pain. And he had just had 20 minutes of the infusion, and I reached across to shake his hand goodbye because I had to go and do something else. And I did so gently, and it was he who said, do that again. And literally, within the short time that he had got this new drug, something had happened to take away his pain which had never happened before. This is a patient who had had close to 200 admissions to Massachusetts General Hospital over the 10-year period to try and control his pain.
1: And how durable was this? Did it last? And has it been done again?
3: So the interesting thing about this drug is it lasted six weeks following the single injection, and that's an unprecedented event in pain therapeutics. And so here we had a drug that, at least in this condition and in this patient, he had had an immediate response as well as a prolonged response. And as it turns out, he went off most of his other pain medications after this. And he survived six months after this incident. And I think he had one more injection or treatment series with this drug. But his pain from the nerve damage never came back in the six months that he lived.
1: If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Proto, Dispatches from the Frontiers of Medicine on ReachMD XM160. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom. And we are talking about drug repurposing with our guest, Dr. Francis Tonaguzzo, Executive Director of Partners Research Ventures and Licensing, and Dr. David Borsuk, physician scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. So we've just been through one way that these drugs get repurposed through serendipity. Are there some more systematic ways that you're working at Massachusetts General Hospital to try and create this type of serendipity?
3: I can give you another example of how clinicians have driven the repurpose or new use of a drug. The drug in question is a drug also for neuropathic pain called Neurontin or Gabapentin. And when the drug came out, a number of us actually tried to call the company and say, "Wow, this could be a drug for this condition, neuropathic pain. I remember the specific call I had with the company, which is a large pharma, and they said, oh, no, we're not interested. But clearly what happened was more and more clinicians called in because this was a drug used as an anti-epileptic, and in the pain field, anti-epileptic or anti-seizure medications seem to work reasonably well for uh, chronic pain. Anyway, today it's probably top of the list in terms of earnings. The reason for it is essentially a physician-driven process because the drug has relatively few side effects and is non-addictive. And so it's not the same example of taking a specific drug like we did before and repurpose it for a completely new indication with the notion that this was a new drug entity in the pain field. There are a number of examples, both in the single drug domain in terms of a serendipitous observation by a clinician or group of clinicians, and then a whole group such as those of us in the pain field where there's very little good medication and so we're always on the lookout for drugs that potentially can do better than what we have and I think the gabapentinoid story is one of those.
1: Why do you think that the companies that make these drugs are not interested in determining or marketing or doing the clinical studies for a new purpose?
2: That's a very good and complicated question. It depends on where the drug is in its development. So if the drug is on the market, already being sold for an indication, you're probably in a better position to engage a company than if the drug is in development, and I'll tell you why. When the drug is in development, every adverse event needs to be reported immediately to the FDA. If they agree to let an entity or even themselves pursue another indication and there's an adverse event, they have to report that adverse event even though it's in another indication to the FDA and it will affect what they're doing in their primary indication. So it's a risk. It's a big risk and usually one that they're not willing to take when the drug is in development. Once a drug is approved for a certain indication and has already received FDA approval, it may be undergoing Phase four studies, but it's really targeted to that specific indication, then an adverse event in another indication wouldn't have the same impact on the drug. So I can tell you that most of the time if a drug is in development, say, for a big indication and your indication is a smaller indication in terms of market size, you will never get a company to agree to pursue a new indication because the risk is too big that it will affect their larger market. But as I said, once the drug is being sold, it's a slightly different equation.
1: So let's talk about when a drug has been proven in the scientific literature to actually have an impact off-label, but maybe it's a generic drug, so there isn't a pharmaceutical company that's going to pursue this. How do those kinds of treatments get into clinical care, and what are some of the things that scientists do to help make that happen?
3: Well, in general, they don't, and that's the unfortunate issue at hand. They're probably in many hundreds of drugs sitting on shelves that don't have any market value. And a drug without a market value can only get into use through other uses. The best examples of those are drugs used in the non traditional medicine domain. And while they get out to the public in a way that the FDA has no regulatory oversight, although that may be changing, what can happen is the serendipitous use of such an agent that then looks important and serious studies are done. However, that is very uncommon. So the problem is really a marketing issue, and there's a specific example on this, and that relates to the use of drugs in the pediatric population. We use drugs in kids for which there have been very few proper clinical trials for efficacy and safety. This issue relates again, I think, to the problem of market value.
1: Right. A 2006 study that was published by the government showed that it might be as high as 50 to 75% of all pediatric drugs are prescribed off-label because there's no scientific evidence that's been published, but the kids need those treatments. Right. So, Partnership for Cures funded a researcher four years ago who repurposed the drug rapamycin, also called sirolimus, for a rare disease called autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome. And it turned out, because of some discoveries that were made in the biological mechanism of the disease and the genetic mechanisms of the disease that it seemed like this drug would work. So we helped them fund a mouse model, and then they went right and tried it on these kids because there were no other drugs available, and these kids were dying in their teens. And this drug actually mostly eradicates their disease completely. And nobody's going to market this because there's not that many kids with this disease, and the drug is already generic. But through the literature, clinicians that treat these kids have learned about this and began to amass more data. Do you see that happening in other diseases or are there other examples from your pain work that talks about these kinds of things?
3: You know, if you were to do a search of potential drugs for pain, I think compared with prior years, there's so much more going on in academic and pharmaceutical laboratories to try and find drugs for What is probably the biggest clinical problem in the United States, maybe next to obesity, although it could be greater, that something like 50 million Americans or more suffer from chronic pain for which we have no really good treatment. And the best data suggests that current treatments in controlled trials treat around 30% of patients compared with placebo. But when we talk about treat, we're talking about a decrease of two points on a 10-point scale. So it's not like an antibiotic that gets rid of my pneumonia completely. And so I think the need and the search are both parallel right now, and I think there's a huge effort, mainly because of the market, to try and find drugs or other treatments that can help patients with chronic pain. If you were to look at even Harvard Medical School as a single institution and all its hospitals, There are probably 10 or 20 such agents being looked at now, and I think this is an optimistic sign where the science is driving new opportunities in therapeutics, but here is a problem that society faces, and that is, if you were to discover a new drug today, it's at least 10 years in most cases to get it to the clinic Unless, like the spikamycin drug, which had already been used in humans, so drugs that have been used in humans for which a novel mechanism or use is discovered, it takes a long time to get out there because of appropriate regulatory practices by the FDA.
1: I'd like to thank our guests. Dr. Francis Tonagutso, Executive Director of Partners, Research Ventures, and Licensing, and Dr. David Borsuk, Physician Scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, for discussing new methods of drug repurposing discovery. Drs. Tonagutso and Borsuk, thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. It's a pleasure. You're welcome. You've been listening to Proto, Dispatches from the Frontiers of Medicine, on ReachMDXM 160, the channel for medical professionals. Proto, Dispatches from the Frontiers of Medicine, is produced in cooperation with Massachusetts General Hospital and Time, Inc. Content Solutions. For more information about this show, please visit reachmd.com forward slash proto. Let Proto Magazine take you to the frontiers of medicine. How might handwriting hint at disease? What really causes osteoarthritis? Who should be creating evidence-based guidelines? Proto Magazine, published by Massachusetts General Hospital, explores compelling breakthroughs and controversial ideas in the lab, on the wards, and in health policy. Visit our website, protomag.com, for your complimentary issue and to view the latest advances and updates in clinical research, basic research, and health policy. That's protomag.com forward slash reachmd.